Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. And uh, if you want a warning of two other places where we'll uh, look at a little bit more extensively, you can bookmark uh, Ezekiel 37 and John chapter 1, 2. But we'll be planted in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. Uh, Father's Day brings to mind memories of being uh, a boy and the glories of boyhood. Uh, I know there's glories of girlhood, uh, but I have no idea what those are like. Um, and I remember being a 10-year-old boy, and by 10 years old I had mastered the art of turning virtually any inanimate object into a weapon. I had two separate conversations in the last week with dads about the fact that it's hard to keep boys from making things into weapons. There's just some sort of uh, ruling force in the universe that uh, draws boys to weapons. And as I was thinking about thinking about it for myself, uh, you know, I remember pretending to play with guns, but for me, I was always drawn to swords. I don't know what it was about swords, but uh, uh, I remember being about 10 years old and kind of coming to the conviction that, you know, swords are actually more impressive than guns. Anyone can shoot a gun, but you have a sword, you actually have to have skill if it's going to be useful to you at all. If you're going to use this for offense or defense, I mean, you, you have to be trained uh, with a sword. And I realize you have to be trained with a gun too, and I'm sure there's many of you might disagree uh, disagree with that, but I take some comfort in the fact that uh, when the when the when God uses the Bible and when He wants to compare His own words with a weapon in a metaphorical way, the instrument He chooses is a sword, and that's what we see in Hebrews chapter four verses twelve and thirteen. As we as we come to those verses, we, it's just helpful to recognize that uh, we're coming to the end of an a section that begins really in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, where the author begins to warn us about the danger of falling away from the living God. Uh, what, what the author of Hebrews does is he points us back to Psalm 95, in which God warns his people through King David to not harden their hearts against God after receiving good from him. Uh, and even there, we're, we're pointed back even further, back to the book of Numbers, when God's people were in the wilderness and the experience of the Israelites who hardened their hearts against God and disobeyed His Word. And as a result, those Israelites did not get to enter the Sabbath rest in the Promised Land. And, and the author of Hebrews points out the fact in uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, that in Psalm 95, David is still talking about entering God's rest. So there's this Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God, and that Sabbath rest still remains today. It still remains to be entered. Sabbath rest is ultimately rooted in creation, where God rested from His work of creation on the seventh day. And so there's hope for us that we can have rest from our labors and from our toil as well. And so in verse, verse 11 of chapter 4 of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews exhorts us to strive to enter God's rest. 
This is somewhat of a jarring concept, right? We're supposed to strive to rest, right? Work hard to stop working. Uh, but this is what the Israelites in the wilderness failed to do. Uh, with, with Egypt behind them and the promised land in front of them, they did not strive to enter God's rest. And how so? Well, specifically, they, they disobeyed God's word. They did not take God's word seriously. And the consequence was failing to enter God's rest. And the message for us this morning, beginning in Hebrews 4 verse 11, is let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Which leads us to our text this morning, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, we recognize that your word is powerful. It cuts to the heart. And it is something to which we can harden our hearts toward or we can open our hearts toward. So would you grant us grace this morning to have hearts open to receiving, even being pierced by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the author of Hebrews is challenging us to strive to enter God's rest. And so if we're, we're going to remain faithful, uh, if, we're, if we're not going to be like the Israelites who fell and failed in the wilderness, we need to understand three things. We need to understand the power of God's word. We need to understand the judgment of God's word. And we need to understand the hope of God's word. And that's what we're going to look at in that order this morning. And before we get there, I think it would be helpful if we're all open to asking ourselves a personal question this morning. And that question is this, what is my relationship to God's Word? What is my relationship to God's Word? First, let's look at the power of God's Word. Before we're even there, just helpful to ask the question, what is God's Word? Right, if you were asked that question, you're probably going to say, well, it's the Bible, right? The Bible is God's Word. And that would be right. That, would, that, that should get you a correct answer on, on the test. But, it, but it's clear from Scripture that not everything God has spoken is recorded in the Bible, right? We have God's words that were revealed to prophets and apostles that were not recorded in Scripture. All the words of Jesus are not recorded in Scripture. We know that God speaks words to angels. He even speaks to the natural world, but not all those words are recorded in Scripture. So, so God's communication is something that uh, exists beyond the bounds of Scripture. It's not less than Scripture, but it, it's, it goes beyond Scripture. We, we also know from Scripture that God's communication is something that existed before the world began, between the members of the Godhead, between the members of the Trinity. So, so the Bible is God's Word, but it's not limited 
to God's word. God's word is, is intricately, it's also intricately connected to who God is. Our God is a speaking God. Uh, this, this is actually what makes the God of Christianity superior to all other deities that are worshipped in other religions. Just one example, Psalm 135, we read, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Our God is superior because He is a speaking God. Speaking distinguishes our God from all other gods. And, and I realize there's other gods, there's other religions that have claims to revelation from deities, but none of them compare to how central the, Christ, the speaking is to the Christian triune God of Scripture. Uh, this is even clear just from the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. This, it's essential to God's acts. Long ago, God spoke, but in these last days, God has spoken. So whether it's his, his act of creating or his act of saving people, whenever God is doing something significant, he is speaking. It's, it's intricately connected to who God is. Uh, this is also a reason why Christians sometimes get accused of worshiping God's Word. God's Word is so closely associated with God Himself that there's a sense in which it's actually right to worship God's Word. And just, uh, if you're a little skeptical of that, consider the words of Psalm 56, where the psalmist writes, In God, whose Word I praise. In the Lord, whose Word I praise. Idolatry is a really big deal in Scripture. The, the first of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. But here we have the psalmist praising God's word. The only way that's acceptable is if there's this incredibly close connection between God's word and who God is. Now there's clarifications there, right? Because it would be wrong for us to bow down before these books, right? These, these, we, what we look at in, in our Bibles is paper and ink, and, and those are mediums for carrying God's word to us. They're created things. They shouldn't be worshipped. And even when we start to think about human language, God's, God's word transcends human language. Uh, God's speech isn't limited by human language, which is why it's acceptable to translate uh, the Bible into all the languages uh, on, on earth. Paper and ink and, and, and human language, these are all mediums that carry God's word to us. We should not worship the medium, but, but God's speech is so closely connected with God himself that the psalmist can praise God's word and God inter, interchangeably. So what is, what is God's word? I think the theologian John Frame summarizes this really well. We can think of it in two ways. God's word is A, the, the sum total of his free communications with his creatures, but another way we can think of God's Word is God's Word is God Him, Himself. This is even clear from our text this morning in verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews, Hebrews 4. The author begins by describing what God's Word does in verse 12. But then if you look at verse 13, without a break, he switches the subject to God Himself. So there's another sense in which God's Word is God Himself. And we see in verse 12 that God's word is living and active. It's living and active. Uh, we're, we're told that it's li literally it's alive. It, it, it has life. 
And then we're told that it's active. Uh, This word active is the word that gives us our word energy. So somewhat literally, God's word is alive and energetic. This is a different kind of word. This is not like other words that we encounter between other people and and, and other words that we read in in other types of texts. This is a very unique kind of word that's living and active. This is why the Bible is continually relevant. Uh, This this description explains why the Bible has the history that it does. There's no other book like Scripture. Uh, You think about it. This this book is old. This is a very old book. Books go out of print all the time. We only preserve the most treasure, the the highest standard, the most impressive writings are what we preserve. You think about Plato and the writings of Aristotle and and, and Shakespeare. But even there, there's no comparison with, with Scripture. I often wonder what, what booksellers and publishers think about you know, Christian literature, right? Because there's, there's thousands of books published every year on all a whole host of different subjects. There's, there's fiction books, there's books on history, there's books on cooking, there's books on arts and science and biography, and uh, you, you, go down, you go down the line. But, but all, those, all those subjects are able to sort of keep a steady stream of, of books being published in, in literature. But then you have the Bible, which, which on its own, just set aside the fact that it's the best-selling book of, of all time, but you just think of how many books exist just as a direct result of the Bible. Uh, is there any other book that's so remarkable and so relevant that, that 1,900 years after it was completed is still inspiring hundreds of books to be written just about it each year? But books explaining it, books tracing its themes and values and, and teachings, uh, books tracing its history and the history of its people, books, books of reference to make it more understandable and accessible to others. Uh, there, there is just nothing like this. I just wonder what, what publishers think. Even if you look at the numbers, uh, I did just a little bit of resource or a little bit of research and, and in nonfiction literature in 2017, Christian uh, or I, sh- I should say it's, it's uh, Christian and religious literature is higher than anything else. Now, of course, there's a lot in that category that uh, we might not be huge fans of. But, but the, the point is that this book is living in an active way that it literally produces other books that are written solely for the purpose of helping people understand this, this book. Of course, there's some people who merely read the, the scriptures as, as an ancient artifact, but, but thousands of people study this book every day. Sermons are preached from this book every week because people continue to find in God's Word answers for life. People read and they continue to find hope in a world of suffering. They continue to find uh, clarity in a word of, world of confusion. People continue to find in, in the Bible uh, wonder in a world of indifference. This book is living and active. This, these words are different from any other words. Not only does it inspire life in people, it also gives life to people. People come to God's word spiritually dead and they leave spiritually alive. They experience what's recorded in Ezekiel 37. You can turn there quickly or you can just read or you can just listen to verses 1 through 10. 
where, where Ezekiel writes, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. It was full of death. Verse 2, and he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. They were very dead. Verse 3, and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied what I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord. Connecting to God's word again. Thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. God's words give life to those who hear God's words. God's word is, is living and it's active. One of the ways that people describe the the Reformation from the 16th century is a recovery of the Word of God, right? Because it was through studying the Word of God that that led the leaders of the Reformation to take issue with the spiritual abuse and superstition that had been brought in by the Roman Catholic Church. And we like to give credit to people like Martin Luther for all the good things that came from the Reformation. But it's really interesting what what Martin Luther said about that. Because even as he started to get people's praise for what was taking place, even you know, in, in that time, in the, while he was alive, during, while the Reformation was, was starting, this is how he responded to people giving him credit for the Reformation. He, he said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And when, while I slept, or went down to the pub with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word of God did it all. So even here, one of the most significant movements in Western civilization, uh, by the testimony of its own most prominent leader, was accomplished because of and by God's word. His living and active word. God's word is living and active, which means it's powerful. Uh, this, this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Going back to the very first words of the Bible in Genesis 1, God's speech is what creates the world. God's word is able to call non-existent matter into existence. So God creates by his word. He doesn't just create by his word. He also sustains that creation by his word. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
Uh, we see this in Jesus' Jesus's ministry. He exercised authority over nature by speaking. So when they're in the boat and there's the storm and he, he calms the storm by just speaking to it and the disciples are tremble in fear saying, even the wind and the sea obey him. Or we see it at the end of Jesus' ministry when he's, he's commissioning the disciples uh, before he ascends into heaven. Right? These, these famous words from the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He sends us out to teach the nations His commands, His words. Why? Because God's Word is living and active. It's powerful. God's Word brings about His Will, consider the words of Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God's word has power. God's word has authority. Everything in nature, even if it doesn't exist at that particular moment yet, responds when God speaks with one exception. You and me. We're the exceptions. God speaks. We find his words irrelevant. God speaks. God commands. We don't respond. We don't obey. So two of the biggest things we see God's word accomplishing in the Bible are judgment and salvation. Just two examples, and I'll just read these for you. The first one, 2 Peter 3, verses 5 through 7. We read that uh, those who ultimately reject God in the last times, the scoffers of the last days, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But here's the, the key point, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that, are, that now exist are stored up for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So here we see that, that the same word that created the world is now, is now keeping it for future judgment. God's word is, is accomplishing and will accomplish judgment. It doesn't just accomplish judgment, though. It also accomplishes salvation. So consider the words of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Really similar here. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness hinting at creation again, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, so we see that, that just, just as God's word created the world, that same word is, is keeping it for judgment. So, so we see here that the same word that created the world also shines light and life into the hearts of spiritually blind sinners. God's word is living and active is it any surprise that God's word is so central to the Christian life? I mean, just consider what you hold in your hands, what's sitting on your lap. You have daily access to words that are intricately connected to God himself. 
Words that are just as relevant thousands of years after they were written. Words that have radically altered the course of human history. Words that created and sustained the entire natural world. Words that create and sustain spiritual life. But here's the question for us. Is God's word sustaining your spiritual life? Remember the context here. We're being warned in in Hebrews chapter 4. We're being warned about falling away from the living God, failing to enter God's rest. This is heaven. I mean, the stakes could not be higher here. And the warning is, do not be like the wilderness generation. They failed to take God's word seriously. After they failed to enter God's rest, and they wandered in the, in, in the wilderness for 40 years, one generation died off and another uh, grew up. In Deuteronomy 8, verse Three, God's, God tells them one of the reasons why they had to wander and why they had to hunger and why they had to eat manna. This is what he says through Moses in Deuteronomy 8.3. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Is God's word sustaining your spiritual life? Or is something else falsely claiming to sustain your spiritual life? Is anything sustaining your spiritual life? Do you have spiritual life? These are the questions we, we have to wrestle with personally. It affects us individually. It also has implications, though, corporately, right? This is why Sovereign Grace Church is the way that it is, right? We're not just focused on the Bible here because we're really stubborn. And it's just like, this is what we do, and this is what we've always done, so we're just going to keep doing it. No, no, the, the, the Bible, we're Bible-focused in this church because where else could we go? What else could we do? I mean, trendy music? Cute skits. Um, maybe we could get up here on Sunday mornings and, and, and explore, you know, the vast array of life hacks to make our lives more productive and easy. The, the, Bi- the Bible has to be critical to everything that we do. And we hope that it is more and more and more. Just take this, this, the worship service, for example. The, the components of the worship service come from Scripture. We sing and we pray. There's preaching. We observe the Lord's Supper once a month. All that comes as a result. That We see that in, in God's Word. Not just the components, but the content of the worship service. God's Word is a part of everything we do. We're reading it. We're singing it. We're praying it. We're proclaiming it. Uh, it affects the form of the service. There's a, region, there's a reason that preaching God's word is the central aspect of the service. There's a law, I mean, this, this is why in Protestant churches there's a pulpit in the center of the room. Uh, there, there's a reason for that. It's, it's placing God's word at the center of what we're doing. There's also a reason why in a lot of uh, Protestant, just sort of mainline uh, evangelical churches today, why the pulpit's being moved. And it's not necessarily for theological reasons like that would have started at the Reformation, 
But it's demonstrating just priorities. Like we don't see God's word as the central thing anymore. It affects the length of the service. The longest part of our service is dedicated to proclaiming God's word. We believe it's worth 45 minutes of our time, give or take. This is why this church is the way it is. We hopefully, by God's grace, refuse to treat God's word as an accessory to worship. This church exists because it's been given life through God's word. This church is sustained only through God's word. This church is ordered. We hopefully we pray according to God's word. And this church worships in a manner that's consumed with God's word. All because of the fact that God's word is powerful. It's living and active. And if we're going to enter God's rest, we need to know the power of God's word. But that's not all we need to know. We also need to understand the judgment of God's word. We look at verses 12 and 13. We see that God's word pierces and discerns and it exposes. So just looking at those in order, God's word pierces. We see in verse 12, this is where the metaphor of the sword comes into, the, it comes into play. The, the, God's word is a sharp sword. This, this isn't the only place in the Bible that God's word is referred to as, as a sword. Uh, this, this is something that comes up uh, repeatedly. Uh, and the fact is it's a very sharp sword. We're, we're told that swords back in this day uh, commonly or typically had a, were blunt on one side and were, were sharp on the other side. So a sword that has a double edge that, that cuts on both sides is a superior weapon. A, a, a double-edged sword would, would be preferable, yet God's word is even sharper than that. And we see that God's word is a sword that pierces. Verse 12, it, it pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. So God's word pierces deep into the human personality. Uh, we, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised that, that as human beings, we do not stand in the way of a word that, that can call non-existent matter into existence. We're, we are no match for the word of God. Uh, and just to, just to clarify here, the, the, uh, the point isn't to give us sort of a psychological or anatomical idea of, of how we're put together. The point here of soul and spirit, of joints and a marrow, it, it is to point us to the fact that God's word so effectively pierces us that it's able to separate what would otherwise be inseparable. So, so soul and spirit, joints and marrow, God's word penetrates into our innermost being our innermost depths, and, and it grips not just part of us, but all of us. God's word pierces, and it pierces in order to discern. You see at the end of verse 12, God's word is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Think how valuable this skill would be in, in society, in just different sectors of, of society. Right? Think how helpful it would be to discern the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts you know, in law enforcement uh, or in the courtroom. Uh, or in, in politics, uh, in school classrooms, uh, in the counseling room, in just the vast array of social settings. Be, be, human beings, we spend countless hours trying to discern the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. Uh, just this last week, a group of men in this church were studying Proverbs 20, verse 5, 
which reads, The purpose of a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Uh, The the point isn't that humans can't ever uncover the purpose of our hearts, uh, but the point is that it's very difficult. Right? We, we often don't even understand the thoughts and, imper- the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. Right? This is why we need spiritually gifted people to help us. And even for them, though, it, it's like searching for something in deep water. But this isn't the case for God. God God's word pierces deep into our innermost being. And God can immediately discern our deepest thoughts and intentions. And for what purpose? The sobering answer is for the purpose of of judgment. Nothing prevents God from knowing immediately and with absolute clarity the the, the deepest parts of our soul, our our darkest secrets. We we can fool human beings. Uh, We can deceive other people. We can put on a compelling face and tell people what they need to hear and and just fool people about who we really are, but You can't fool God. God sees you for who you are. God knows everything we do. More than that, God knows the nuances of every intention and motivation of your heart in everything that you do. All justice on this side of the heaven is is partial. All all the justice we uh, we, we can accomplish on this side is what we can observe Uh, and test with evidence and and eyewitness testimony, but there is a justice that is coming that will be absolutely complete. It will be be based on on, uh, undeniable evidence that comes from the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God's word pierces, God's word discerns, and then we see in verse 13 that God's word exposes And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Notice what we are before the living, active, piercing, discerning word of God. We are naked and exposed. What's the first thing Adam and Eve did after they sinned? They covered themselves. It was was instinctual. There was shame and all of a sudden there was this need for coverings. And the same, the same is true today. Uh, n- nakedness is, is terrifyingly uncomfortable. And, and it's one thing to experience the shame of being exposed physically, but it's another thing to experience the shame of being exposed spiritually. Or another way to think about it, it it's one thing to be exposed before other human beings. That's really uncomfortable. But it is another thing to experience the shame of being exposed before the purity of God's holiness. No creature is exempt from God's sight. There are no exceptions. The day is coming for all of us when when there will be no place to hide. And the spotlight of God's perfectly discerning word will be shined on us. And we will be seen for who we truly are. You will be naked and exposed before the eyes of a holy God whose word will effortlessly pierce and discern who you truly are. And you will give account for yourself. 
the consequence for sin before an eternal holy God will be eternal judgment in a place where there will be no rest. This is why the author of the Hebrews is encouraging us to strive to enter God's rest. Because there's not just the power of God's word and the judgment of God's word, but there's also hope in God's word. Praise God that we do not only find power and judgment in God's word. Can you imagine what it would be like if all there was to God's word was power and judgment? We looked earlier at the fact that God's word accomplishes his will. God's word creates. God's word sustains. God's word brings judgment, but God's word also brings salvation. And how? How does it do this? Well, there's so many places we could go, but let's look at John 1. Just just reading what, what these words say in terms of God's word bringing hope, God's word bringing salvation. These familiar words read, In the beginning was the Word. So we're still talking about the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's that close connection again. With God was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who all, all who did receive God's word, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, God's word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of power and judgment. No. God's word came full of grace and truth. Here we see that God's word is is God's son. God the son who took on human flesh and lived a sinless life. God the son who stood naked and exposed in our place. God's son who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. God the son who took the judgment for us. For anyone who will turn away from their sins and put all of their hope in Christ alone. And I pray that you will do that. We see that those who receive God's word become children of God. We see that although God's word is sharp and discerning and exposing in judgment, it's also full of grace and truth in salvation. We see that God's word exposes us and uncovers us and reveals us as guilty and leaves us naked before God. But we see that God's word also rescues us and covers us and makes us righteous and clothes us before God so that there is rest to come. 
the people of God. Already we rest from the work of trying to earn our way to heaven. Uh, You will never do enough good deeds to cover up what will ultimately be exposed by the word of God at final judgment. But one day there will be eternal Sabbath rest for God's people. No longer judged by his word, but saved by his word. No longer exposed by his word, but eternally sustained by his word. I wonder, what is your current relationship to God's word? Do you see it as powerful? Do you see it as judgment? Do you see it as your only hope? I pray you'll seek to rest in Christ, knowing God's word will expose your heart. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world where there are many temptations. We are people who tend to set our hearts on things that seem to bring us rest, but really only bring us more toil. We are people who do not take your word seriously. We treat it although it's dead and not living, as though it's, it's boring and not active, as, as if it's dull and not sharp, as if it has very little power. Father, we need your forgiveness and grace. Forgive us for our failure to take your word seriously. Help us see your word for what it is, the living and active word of God. Help us to treasure it as that which gives us spiritual life. Help us to feed on it, knowing that it sustains our lives. And Father, help us find our rest in you alone. Help us set our gaze on Christ alone and trust in him completely. We know you are merciful. We we know you have crushed the curse of death. That by the power of your saving word, we know that we can be and are yours forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.